clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. The grass withers, the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Article 9 of the Belgian Confession, I'm going to read, if you're following along, uh, the first, starting in the first full paragraph of the second column. It says, in all these places... The confession goes through many of the scriptures we'll be talking about tonight, uh, so we'll, we'll read the, the, the summation of the doctrine. We're thinking of the proof of the, the doctrine of the Trinity and how we find it in scripture, what we are to do uh, in confessing that doctrine. So I'll read this. In the second column, starts in all these places. In all these places, we are fully taught that there are three persons in one only divine essence, And although this doctrine far surpasses all human understanding, nevertheless, we now believe it by means of the word of God, but expect hereafter to enjoy the perfect knowledge and benefit thereof in heaven. Moreover, we must observe the particular offices and operations of these three persons towards us. The Father is called our Creator by His power. The Son is our Savior and Redeemer by His blood. The Holy Spirit is our Sanctifier by His dwelling in our hearts. This doctrine of the Holy Trinity has always been affirmed and maintained by the true church since the time of the apostles to this very day against the Jews, Mohammedans, and some false Christians and heretics as Marcion, Manus, Praxius, Sibelius, Samosatanus, Arius, and such like, who have been justly condemned by the Orthodox Fathers. Therefore, in this point, we do willingly receive the three creeds, namely that of the apostles of Nicaea and of Athanasius. Likewise, that which, conformable thereunto, is agreed upon by the ancient fathers. Wonderful heritage of doctrine to be handed down to us, to guard with our confession and our faith. So we turn tonight to consider this doctrine of the Trinity. 
Perhaps you wondered why this, the title of this sermon is Practical Doctrine, when for many, the doctrine of the Trinity is far from practical. That's what we aim to tackle tonight and to show that it is indeed a practical doctrine. There is a German theologian by the name of Friedrich Schleiermacher, perhaps the most German name ever. He infamously made the remark that it makes no practical difference whether God is one person or three. And what we must understand is not only does it make a difference, it makes all of the difference in the world. Without the triune God, we go from blessedness and eternal life to alienation from God. There is nothing as practical as this doctrine. But even more than that, we see that the doctrine of the Trinity is extremely practical because it flows out of proper worship. When we worship God correctly, we come to understand more and more the doctrine of the Trinity. So it flows out of proper worship into discipleship. We see that from doxology, that is worship, doxology, to doctrine, to discipleship. When we're talking about discipleship, we're talking about practically living for God and in light of all that he has done for us. We see that in Matthew tonight. Before the risen and exalted Lord Jesus, the disciples fall down and they worship him as they realize more fully than they ever had before that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And it was that experience that they had of the risen Christ that gives rise to uh, their understanding the one God who exists in three persons. Without doxology and proper doctrine, we would have no discipleship. Thus, if you would live a practical life of service to God, if you would live for Him and His glory, if you would practically apply your knowledge of the Scriptures in wisdom to all of the various situations of your life, you need this doctrine. You need the triune God. We'll look at this In three movements, first the the biblical development of the doctrine from Old Testament to New. We will see the Trinity in personal experience as we reflect on not only the apostles, but also uh, not only the 11 apostles, but the apostle Paul as well. And then finally, uh, we will consider that movement of doxology to doctrine to discipleship. The doctrine of the Trinity must be taught within a careful confession of monotheism. In other words, we're not abandoning the truth that there is only one God. Monotheism meaning one, and theism, belief in God, one God. We remember this from our text last week in Isaiah chapter 44. God says, is there a God besides me? There is no rock, I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing. The things they delight in do not profit. There is no other gods besides the one that we serve and worship. The next chapter, Isaiah 45, says this, From the rising of the sun and from the west, there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. This is foundational to our confession as Christians. We believe in one God. Article 1 of the confession says, we looked at it several weeks ago, in uh, several different stages. We all believe with the heart and confess with the mouth that there is one only simple and spiritual being which we call God. There's only one. One God. We said that God is simple. That doesn't mean that God is easy to understand or he doesn't have any complexity of his being. What that means is that God is not composed of parts. The cars are composed of parts. The body, the engine, 
all of the various components making up the whole. God is not composed of parts. We are made of parts, body, mind, and soul. God does not have parts. There is only one God. He is simple. He is a spiritual being. This may cause you to think that perhaps this creates a problem for us in saying, confessing the oneness of God in this way. We could think perhaps of people of the Jewish and Muslim faiths who go to the same Old Testament that we do. They hold them in high esteem. They are the Jewish scriptures, and, and, the, and the Muslims uh, believe them too, accept them as holy writings as well. They look to this same Old Testament, and they, they conclude there is one God who is one person. They conclude differently than we do. But what we must see is that even in the Old Testament, there is clear teaching of a plurality within God. We think of Genesis. God creates the world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And even right there in the second verse of Genesis, we see that the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. So there's this distinction in the first couple of verses of a God who's creating, and then we see further revelation given the spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. And if you do a study of the spirit of God in the Old Testament, you will see that that is the presence of God's glory, which seems to be in many ways distinct from uh, the, the, the naming of God who sits in the heavens. So you have the glory cloud uh, of God, which is the, the Shekinah presence in the tabernacle and the temple. You have this glorious presence of God on Mount Sinai when Moses receives the law of God. And it seems that, and then of course you go forward, you see the, the glory cloud moving in the midst of Israel and in front of the people. It seems that that is leading us on to conclude of some type of plurality within God. Later in Genesis 1, God says, let us make man in our image. And many, many good scholars and theologians believe that that is giving us a glimpse into the, the intra-Trinitarian life at creation. Let us make man in our own image. And of course, we later read in the New Testament that Jesus Christ is the one through whom all things were made. We read this in Colossians 1. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Which, by the way, when you read that firstborn of all creation, that does not mean that Jesus is the first part of creation. It means that he is the heir of all creation. He is the one who will inherit all of the glory of the creation because he is the one through whom all things will be reconciled to God. So that does not mean that he is something that was created. It means he is the heir of all things. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Christ and for Christ. So creation... As we understand it, take a view of all of Scripture. Creation happens from the Father in the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Something else we could consider in the Old Testament is the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord, which is found in several different accounts. One of the main ones would be Genesis 18, where the angel of the Lord comes and appears to Abraham in a form that seems to be like a human and most good scholars who believe in the authority of God's word take this to be the pre-incarnate Christ. This is the Son of God before he was incarnate as Jesus of Nazareth. And what's interesting or fascinating about Genesis 18 is the angel of the Lord speaks to Abraham 
And there are a number of times where it says, not the angel said to Abraham, it says, the Lord said, using the covenant name of God, Yahweh says. So when the angel of the Lord speaks to Abraham, his covenant God is speaking to him. You can go further on in the Old Testament to Zechariah chapter 3, where the angel of the Lord is sitting on the throne in the heavenly courtroom. And as he speaks, his words are attributed as God's word. Related to this is the prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament. And there's this mysterious weaving together of the presence of God in and through the Messiah. So we think of places like Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9, where the Messiah is called God with us. Or, uh, or two chapters later, Isaiah 9, that he is called the mighty God. Of course, as we thought about that around Christmas time, we saw that Isaiah can only be talking about the divine Son of God, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So there is this, this fascinating interweaving of these ideas that there is one God, yet there is a plurality within God. To say that he is one God, uh, it would be incorrect to say he is one God and one person. He is one God, but there is something else to it. It's incomplete to say simply that he is one. So when this same Savior is born as the Messiah, Jesus Christ, new revelation is given, and that new revelation gives rise to the explicit teaching of the Trinity. Think of very clear places like John 1, where you read that in the fullness of time, Jesus, as the Word, became flesh, and he dwelt among us. This Word was with God. This Word was God, we read. He is the one by whom all things were made. For without him was not anything made that was made. The Word, which is Jesus, is a person who's distinct from the Father, but who is himself also God. It's a recurring theme in John's Gospel. Jesus calls people to believe in him, which if he were not God would be quite an outstanding claim, right? It would be just to probably stone him, which is the way the Jews responded a lot. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Interesting to think about relative to some of the things we've been hitting on recently, that God is the one who fulfills and satisfies the longings of our souls. And Jesus says something to that, to, to that effect, come to me and you will not hunger. He's showing us his divinity. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He goes on to say in John 10, I and the Father are one. Now listen to the response. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. The Jews knew what Jesus was doing. He was claiming to be God. If you move forward in the Gospel of John, I think it's fascinating to, to think about the upper room discourse in John 14 through 17. And there I think that Jesus really gives rise to the doctrine of the, whole, the divinity of the Holy Spirit. That Jesus says, the Holy Spirit's going to come in my name. He's going to follow me. He's going to continue my work. And because you will have the Holy Spirit abiding with you, you will be better off than if I were to stay. Now how could that be true if Jesus were God? And the Holy Spirit were not. Fascinating look into the divinity of the Holy Spirit. So we learn a very important point. The three persons of the Trinity have distinct properties. And they all three are yet the same God. 
This is a mystery, as our confession says. But our word, the word of God, is explicit in teaching it to us. Thus the Father, Son, and Spirit must share an intimate communion of love and purpose. We looked at that and considered that last week. The Son cannot be the Father. The Father cannot be the Son or the Spirit. But all three must eternally be the one and the true God. This is not an abandonment of Old Testament teaching, but a fulfillment of it. We read in Acts chapter 24, an astounding way that Paul affirms the fact that he believes the God of the Old Testament. He says this, I confess this to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God. Paul says, I believe, I confess the God of my fathers, the God of the Old Testament. He has been revealed to be the one God in three persons. So far, so good. These are scriptural arguments that perhaps we've heard, we see, we know them, and we know that the Trinity is something that we find in Scripture. But perhaps we ask ourselves, so how is this a practical doctrine? How does my life change, whether God is one person or three? But to that we must say that if we cling to God's Word, if we go to God's Word and see the ways in which the Trinity has come into the life of the church and changed hearts and changed lives... We see it's not some kind of abstract idea that wise sages sit around and ponder and think about in smoke-filled rooms. Rather, it is a living reality tied to the redemption from our sins and the ongoing purpose and motivation for our lives. It's essential to that. If you want to know about the, the, the motivation for the Christian life, the kinds of things we need to hold to live for Christ and for His glory We need this doctrine. We see this as we consider our main sermon text for this evening in Matthew 28. There is this unchanging connection, this necessary, essential connection between the resurrection of Christ and the full opening up of the doctrine of the Trinity. That's really where we see in history the beginnings of God revealing to his people explicitly that God is one in essence, but three in persons. We see this first in the plans of the Jewish leaders. What do they do? They hear the words about something miraculous has happened, right? The guards are struck and they are acting as though they are dead or or perhaps they were in some way knocked out. And they, they hear, the Jewish leaders hear about this. And so they bribe the Roman guards to lie about what happened at the tomb. These guards had seen the risen Christ, But the Jewish leaders were not interested in that. They are interested in getting out ahead of the news cycle. That's something we see a lot in our world, isn't it? Things are released or leaked, and everyone's trying to get ahead of the news cycle. That's what the Jewish leaders are trying to do here in Matthew 28. If we think about this, what is it that they are doing? They are working to deny or to suppress the divinity and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. They are blinded by their sin to the point where they are unwilling to entertain the possibility that something has happened in the resurrection that they never could have anticipated. They believe that they worship God, the God of their scriptures. They know him and they serve him. But in denying Jesus, they are lost in their sin, aren't they? Trinity is essential. Think about this when you are tempted to believe that there are many people out there who say that 
Trinity is unnecessary or they don't believe that Jesus is God, that he's a good teacher, he is the Son of God, but he himself is not God. People who claim that the Trinity is a man-made doctrine, we see that Scripture leads us to completely the opposite conclusion. One Jewish leader who denied Jesus in this way was the Apostle Paul. He persecuted the church. He carried on the spirit of the Jewish leaders of Matthew 28, working to suppress uh, the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Paul's life changed. His life was changed, 180 degree difference. And his life changed not in a classroom while writing a term paper. His life changed on the road to Damascus. I think it's interesting that it happened on a road. There's really no deeper meaning in it other than the observation that it's on a road that you're probably on the exact opposite place as something like a library, right? The road has movement and hustle and bustle, danger, change. Everything is in the present. A library is quiet. It's a glimpse into the past. But on this road, Paul changed from a, a, a stringent Jewish monotheist, one God, one person, to the man who more than anyone else in human history contributed to the development of the doctrine of the Trinity. And this change happened because on that road to Damascus, Paul experienced the risen Christ. He encountered him in real life. And that's what changed Paul and, and Paul's heart from the inside out. Before that moment, Jesus was nothing but a man, a failure, someone who had tried to uproot Judaism, but he had been killed at the hands of the Jews and the Romans. But listen to Paul speak about this in 2 Corinthians. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but, but who for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now he says this, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once once regarded Christ according to the flesh. What's he saying there? We once thought he was Jesus of Nazareth, who failed and who was killed. And once he was killed, his life was over, and his movement was over, and it needed to be squashed. We regard him according to the flesh no longer. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When Paul met the risen Christ, he truly met the Trinitarian God. He was forced to change how he regarded Jesus, how he thought of him. And because he changed the way that he regarded Jesus, his life changed from the inside out. And he was given this new heart, this spiritual life that was on fire for the glory of God, that was completely and radically devoted to him. The point of all of this is that without uh, confessing Christ in this way, without regarding the Holy Spirit the way that Paul did, Paul will go on to say, you cannot confess Christ as Lord unless you have the Spirit upon you, unless you have the Spirit given to you, unless you confess the Spirit and the Lordship of Christ, there is no life with God. There is no peace with God. Paul will put it this way. We think about Jesus saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Paul will say later in Philippians chapter 2, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Without the Trinity, there is no peace with God. God. 
our great Athanasian Creed. It's very long, and it's hard to recite in the, the context of a worship service, but it's still well worth our consideration here. It begins this way. Whoever desires to be saved should, above all, hold to the Catholic faith. Anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. Now this is the Catholic faith, that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither confounding their persons nor dividing the essence. If we would be saved, we would believe in this God, the God of Scripture, the God who is one and the God who is three in person. So what is more practical than the salvation of our souls? Well, nothing. We considered uh, this morning, we must fear God and not man because he is the one who has the authority to judge, to grant eternal destiny. Thus, we are to remember that he is the one who holds power over the life to come. The Trinity is on the ground level of all of this, isn't it? Because the gospel is the gospel of Christ, that Christ is Lord, and that in the Holy Spirit, he continues to rule and reign and draw people to himself, all those whom the Father gives to him in eternal election. The Trinity is on the ground level of the work of the church. But the practical matters extend beyond even that. Consider Matthew 28 and verse 17. We see the disciples The 11 disciples finally encounter Jesus in his resurrection glory. They come to meet Jesus, the one they were following for three years, the one to whom they had had dedicated their lives to his mission. For the first time, they come into contact with him in his resurrection glory. And what happens? They worship him. They worship Jesus Christ. Think about how significant that is. These are Jewish Old Testament monotheists. Matthew wrote his gospel primarily to the people of Israel to show them that Christ was the fulfillment of all of their scriptures. Think about how this passage probably made people just repulsed in anger, unable to stand what the apostles are doing here. They're falling down and they're worshiping Jesus Christ. Why? Because in that moment, they saw with the clarity so unlike what they had before, that the one whom they had been following was not some mere man who had been blessed to carry out the work of God, to do his miracles, but rather he is the one, as Revelation will say about him, the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades." From the disciples in this passage, Matthew 28, as they worship Jesus, they fall down, they worship him, we learn that the only proper worship is the worship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Attributing all of them, attributing to all of them, divinity, deity, glory, majesty, blessing, and honor. John Owen says that the saints, the people of God, have distinct communion with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. All of us, communing with God by the Spirit, through the power of the Spirit, through the the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, through the love of God as our Heavenly Father, we have distinct communion with all of them. They become the object of the enjoyment of our souls. This was something that theologian Augustine wrote about a lot in the early centuries of the church. He says this, The true objects of our enjoyment are the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, 
who are at the same time the Trinity, one being supreme above all and common to all who enjoy him. Secondly, from the disciples, we learn that a proper life of service to God begins with the worship of the triune God. That's how a practical life of service to God begins. Doxology, worshiping Christ, the risen Christ whom they encountered. Doxology leads to doctrine, understanding that Christ is God in the flesh. And that leads to discipleship. Before we are ready to live in service to God, we must be filled up in the worship of him. We must understand that it's only the triune God that can give us true spiritual life that will well up into a practical life lived in service to God. If you take away the doctrine of the Trinity, the foundation of all fruits of love and goodness are lost to the soul. See then tonight the goodness of the Trinity for your soul and how practical it is to commune with God for the health of your soul. came across a quote this week and it it, uh, struck me, thought I'd share it with you. It said this, the human soul is in exile from our thinking. That's true, isn't it? We live in a world where the soul is in exile from our thinking. No wonder then that it is considered, that it is not considered relevant to worship. Heaven is too distant to contemplate. Our lives are lived within the restricted boundaries of our terrestrial horizon. We have so despised the notion of pie in the sky that we have lost our taste for it altogether. But when our souls are engaged in worship, our gaze is lifted heavenward. Our hearts are set aflame by the divine fire, and we are ready to be done with this world. It's when we're ready to be done with this world that God can use us in this world, isn't it? That we start to understand that the life that he has laid up for us in Christ, it's only when we grasp a hold of that and love that more than anything else and we're ready to be done with this world that God can use us in this world. There is such a thing, he says, as mystic, sweet communion with Christ in worship, written by a man who recently went to be with Jesus, R.C. Sproul. This last point Uh, is shown to us in the baptismal formula of Matthew 28. Jesus sends out uh, his apostles into the world and he says, go and make disciples. How are they to make disciples? They are to baptize into the one name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's not three names. That's one name. The one name of the true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And look at how baptism flows into discipleship. Then teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. Thus the doctrine of the Trinity is not only necessary for proper peace and fellowship with God, but that proper peace and fellowship forms the basis of a life lived unto the glory of God, learning all that God has commanded us to do in obedience to him. We might say that there's nothing more practical than living for the glory of the triune God. And we should also say that without that practical basis, there would be no foundation for the many practical issues that come up in our lives. All of us live lives of various challenges. You need this God, the true God, with you. With that baptismal formula in mind, brothers and sisters, remember your baptism. Remember that you are 
baptized, not in the sense of your fallible human memory. Remember that God has placed his name upon you through the waters of baptism, that he has called you your, that he has called you his, and he has made you his own. Remember that, and remember in and through your unchangeable union with Christ by faith and fellowship with God in the Holy Spirit, you have this experience of the risen and exalted Lord that makes us realize more and more the glories of the Trinity. Without that, you will be powerless, powerless to live for God and his glory. But because through his word, God calls us to remember our baptism, to improve upon our baptism, that's something else we need to remember, that baptism has a lifelong efficacy for us. Every day we draw upon its power. Every day we live more and more into the reality of our baptism. Because of that, we share in this life of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If we do that, if we remember those things, We will resolve to obey the commandments, to love, to honor our God, to have his wisdom applied from his word in all of our situations. We will embrace the fear of God to joyfully accept whatever this world gives to us, respond in faithfulness to him, in love for him, and for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for your truth. We are humbled by it, and we know that we don't deserve your goodness, your grace. We pray that you would apply these scriptures to our lives and that we would be drawn more and more into fellowship with you and, and that the message of redemption would, would so grip our hearts that we're ready to be done with this world, but we know that when you have us stay below, uh, that we are to live for you and for your glory. So help us to do that in the power of your spirit this week that this would be a church, a congregation that's formed by the supernatural powers of your word and the glories of the gospel, and that we would live in light of that for you and for your truth, loving you, loving our neighbors. In Christ's name, amen. Our song of response is...